0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which marks the second time in the history of Radio Parallax that both participants of this program have been out of state. We did some recordings from the Island Republic of St. Kitts and Nevis down in the Caribbean a couple years back. But uh, today's show finds us north of the border in Oregon. I have always held Oregon in high regard, as has Mr. McMillan. But it's been a long time since, uh, since I was up here, and I'm glad to be back. There is a purpose for this excursion. We are scouting out locations for the August 2017 Eclipse of the Sun, which for the first time since 1991 touches United States soil. Now, back in 1991, United States soil meant it went over the Big Island of Hawaii. This time, a vast swath of America is going to be treated to this celestial spectacle, starting with Newport Oregon and winding up somewhere near Columbia, South Carolina. An awful lot of the U.S. is going to have a ringside seat for this one. Now, we've reported about this, um, we've talked about this a bit on previous programs and warned people that the idea that you need to go to Illinois or Missouri where you get a little bit more eclipse um, time-wise, is probably not such a great idea due to the weather considerations, which is why we are currently in eastern Oregon, east of the cascades where it's a little bit drier and the odds of not having cloud cover are improved. I have some good news and bad news as regarding this effort. The good news is that we have found an excellent, excellent spot from which to view this eclipse. The bad news is that selfishly I am not going to share it. Mr. Millen says he can be bribed to reveal the secret location, but I don't think I can be. Now, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of good spots to view this eclipse, and uh, Eastern Oregon is going to be somewhere at the top of the list. I'll just say that we were north of Bend. If you go to the NASA website, and I hope you will, you can find a lot of locations. You can actually find the eclipse track, and from that, figure out where some good viewing spots would be. Getting near the center line of the eclipse is always a good idea because when you're near the very edge of where the eclipse is visible, you sometimes only get just a few seconds of the spectacle. I do hope that a lot of you listeners will actually take me up on this and, and go to Oregon, or Idaho, or Wyoming, or uh, if you've got friends like um, like um, <laughs> Dr. Palomine has in in Georgia, you can even see it there. There's a little strip of Georgia and, and actually um, North Carolina that uh, get a little bit of eclipse before it disappears off US soil in South Carolina and I'm sure a lot of you are asking why well, we keep making a big deal out of this but I just have to say that once you've seen one of these things it's you're, 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 you're kind of hooked it's it's really a it's really a show like no other I, I'm delighted to be able to report that I have gone to see five of them and, am, and are basically five for five on total solar eclipses I think I've spent um, a total of something like 17 minutes in the moon's Complete shadow at this point, and I'm hoping to add a couple minutes more next August. Probably should add that on on the way up here, we did uh, a stop at Crater Lake, and if you've never seen Crater Lake, well, you should. It is one of the premier attractions, I think, of the American West, or probably of United States in general. It's very, very scenic. It's the deepest volcanic lake in the world, with a depth of over 1,900 feet. And it really is a, an amazing natural spectacle, quite, quite stunning in its appearance and, uh, and, and a lake that is fed by no rivers. It, it basically gets by on the snow that falls on the top of the mountain. And because the porous rock in the volcano drains out very slowly, it maintains a surprisingly even keel. Although my understanding is the Metropolitan Water District has been eyeing um, Crater Lake, being that it does contain 5 trillion gallons of water. Now, if they could just put a pipe in there and and basically siphon the water off, they could probably build hundreds of thousands of more homes out in the Mojave Desert and possibly continue our wasteful water practices by which we grow hay in the Imperial Valley, currently using something like 20% of California's water to grow a product that generates 0.1% of the income of California and also shipping the hay off mostly to the Chinese. I'm kidding, of course, about the plan to siphon off the water from C- Crater Lake, but you know, stay tuned. We've had some more updates on our on our sad water situation. That uh, that that well, they're, they're they're just sad. That's all. Not the locals find out. Not the locals found out that I was saying what I'm about to say. They probably would pull me out of my hotel room and hang me from the nearest lamppost. But I have to say, it's pretty stunning up here, and you know, it makes you, reminds you of the fact that you know California ain't the whole world. There's some Pretty nice other places, and some of them are pretty close at hand. This area up here near uh, near Bend uh, is quite stunning when you look to the west and see the Cascade Mountains, an extension of course of the Sierra Nevada that runs up into Canada uh, there 's some really beautiful volcanoes, uh, the Three Sisters, just west of uh, Bend, a little bit north of that Mount Jefferson, and when you drive a little bit further north, you can see Mount Hood off in the distance. It is. Something else. On the way up here, we passed Mount Shasta, and I w- I found it rather jaw dropping to note how little snow there was on Mount Shasta. I've never seen it uh, so so bare and dry. We can only hope that in the years to come here, that we will see some wetter winter cycles and more snow up on Mount Shasta. Now, uh, when I was growing up, and when an awful lot of you were growing up, we were we were to- we were told that the volcanoes in the United States were inactive. They they were all pretty much dormant, with the one exception of Mount Lassen, which they did note um, had some volcanic activity around 1916. Not a whole lot, but uh, enough to get noticed. All that, of course, changed in 1980 when uh, Mount St. Helens, located in Washington near the Oregon border, went kapow to the tune of something like, what, five megatons uh, of explosion? Maybe more. I'm not sure on that. The photos of it blowing up, of which there are many, uh, are are astonishing. And uh, subsequent photos of the giant crater left when a lot of the mountain was simply blown right off uh, was also uh, pretty disturbing. Uh, We report on this program that um, scientists have noted, as the decades have gone by, that life is returning to these denuded, uh, uh, ash-filled areas as uh, life has a habit of doing, and I guess in the middle of that, there's a little bit of encouragement that, you know, no matter how man may screw things up, nature does have a way of um, coming back. At least, we hope so. Now, because we're operating under some unusual circumstances for this week's program, we're going to abandon our usual methodology at the top of the show, but uh, what material I have at hand, I'm going to throw at you. And since we were joking about water, why not go with that particular topic? I will refer in this instance to the San Francisco Chronicle article by Carolyn Lockhead. And we'll be relying upon this edition of the Chronicle for much of today's program because it was packed with some pretty interesting stuff, unusually so. This piece by Ms. Lockhead was about water, the water crisis, and um, how this is playing into the presidential campaigns of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. To quote from the piece since the California primary in June, when Hillary Clinton cautiously sidestepped questions on the state's five-year drought. She has laid out detailed policy positions on western water issues that have surprised experts with their nuance, but have gone almost completely unnoticed. The same holds true on renewable energy, climate change, public lands, and other environmental issues. And there's probably no better time than at this exact juncture to, quote, once again, quote, we're very fond of from former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, who once said politicians are the same everywhere. They promise to build a bridge even if there is no river. But back to the piece. Clinton's plan describes the dimensions of the problem the federal government will face during the next presidency, noting that the Colorado River Basin, on which the West's big cities such as Phoenix and Las Vegas and to some degree Los Angeles depend, is in its 16th year of drought. To address this, Clinton calls for a big push on water conservation and reuse. Sounds good. Along with habitat restoration. Also sounds good. And similar measures. She adds a special focus on water technology, calling for a new water innovation laboratory modeled in the nation's energy labs, such as Lawrence Livermore. The lab's mission would emphasize basic water research, an area that's been neglected for decades. At this point, I start to feel a bit skeptical A National Water Innovation Laboratory? Yes, Mr. President, we've been looking into it, and it appears that the water is wet. We've also observed that it generally flows downhill, and that while sometimes you don't have enough of it, sometimes you have too much. I don't know, as far as we can see, if you keep putting more people in California and you keep growing dumbass crops where they shouldn't be, you're going to have water problems. A water laboratory is not going to be able to solve any of those problems. At this point, I'd like to put that article on hold and instead jump to New Scientist magazine, because they have a piece about water that is relevant, I think, at this juncture. Everyone agrees, or seems to agree, that water reuse is a great idea. But as is so often the case in the real world, sometimes we overlook a few things. To quote from the piece in New Scientist by Anthony King, Water reuse means we are all consuming a cocktail of other people's medicine leftovers. Should we be worried? It goes on. Pick up a glass, fill it from the tap, and take a sip. You have just had a tiny dose of the pills your neighbor took days before. Excreted and flushed through our sewage works and waterways, drug molecules are all around us. A recent analysis of streams in the U.S. detected an entire pharmacy. Diabetes meds, muscle relaxants, opioids, antibiotics, antidepressants, and more. Drugs have even been found in crops irrigated by treated wastewater. The amounts that end up in your glass are minuscule, and they won't lay you low tomorrow. However, someone prescribed multiple drugs is more likely to experience side effects, and risks rise exponentially with each drug taken by a person over 65. So, could tiny doses of dozens of drugs have an impact on your health? The piece quotes Klaus Kummerer at the University of Lundberg in Germany, who said, we don't know what it means. if you." if you have a lifelong uptake of drugs at very low concentrations. Mei Wu at the National Resources Defense Council said, "...those drugs have been individually approved, but we haven't studied what it means when they're together in the same soup." It goes on, "...30 years ago no one paid attention to endocrine disruptors, artificial chemicals found in a variety of materials. These environmental contaminants are now linked to breast cancer and abnormal development in children. The cocktail in our water involves many more compounds, so this time we can't afford to wait for negative effects to emerge. Going on, the issue of drugs in our water came to a head earlier this year when researchers were taken aback by the discovery of some drug residues in crops irrigated with treated wastewater in Israel. To see if these residues passed into the body, Benny Chaffetz at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and his colleagues focused on an epilepsy drug called carbamazepine, which they detected in cucumbers, lettuce, and other produce. Volunteers who consumed an irrigated crop had a dramatic spike in this drug's levels in their urine, which took over a week to clear. Those who ate crops irrigated by fresh water saw no effect. This was a big surprise, says Chaffetz. Chris Radio Prelex would note in defense of this practice that none of the people that consumed those cucumbers did go on to have epileptic seizures, but seriously, this is a concern. Now, in Israel, half of their irrigation water comes from recycled wastewater. California plans to increase its use for crops in response to drought. Paul Bradley of the U.S. Geological Survey and his team checked streams in the eastern U.S. for 108 chemicals which is a drop in the bucket of the 3,000 drug compounds currently in use, one river had 45. And even though two-thirds of the streams weren't fed by treated wastewater, 95% of them had the anti-diabetic drug metformin, probably from street runoff or leaky sewage pipes. Now, obviously, one solution to this is better sewage treatment, but the article notes that um, Switzerland went ahead and did that. It cost them a billion dollars. They've estimated that in England alone, just removing the hormone estradiol from sewage plants could cost billions of pounds. Anyway, suffice it to say that there are some problems in recycling water. But back to the piece about the presidential candidates. It's noted there that Hillary Clinton is planning to direct billions of dollars in federal investment to repair and replace the West's aging water infrastructure, noting that California cities lose enough water each year in leaks alone to supply all of Los Angeles. Of course, in California, more water is given to Stewart and Lynn Resnick for their pistachios and almonds than is used by all of Los Angeles. We shall see how this goes down, but um, some people are, you know, voicing approval. Peter Gleick, co-founder of the Pacific Institute Think Tank and a resource, and a resource scientist says, referring to Clinton's um, policy position papers, it's remarkably well-written, comprehensive, thoughtful. I hadn't seen it before, I'm embarrassed to say, but I thought it was really spot on. Now, on the other side of the coin, we find the comedy relief. Comedy is the word for it. Carolyn Lockhead notes that Trump has shown no such nuance. He bluntly told a huge rally in Fresno last May, there is no drought, something he said he had learned at a private meeting that morning with farmers organized by an official of the Westlands Water District, a politically powerful group of irrigators. Now, how the good people at the Westlands Water District have determined that there's no drought we're quite unclear on. But Trump, last May, told the Seland Arena down in Fresno, you have a water problem that's so insane, it's so ridiculous, where they're taking our water and shoving it out to sea. <laughs> oh, I get so tired of hearing that from these water people. Yeah, the water just gets wasted. It goes out to sea and it floods all these wetlands. You know, that's terrible. We should be using it to grow hay. Mr. McVillan Mr. suggests that Trump camp that you may want to argue that maybe this is why the ocean water levels are rising. But down in Fresno, Trump said the solution is very simple. He would turn on the taps for San Joaquin Valley growers, saying, quote, we're going to get it done quickly. Don't even think about it. Since that time, the Trump campaign has issued no policy positions on water or on the environment in general. The campaign has no environmental plan on its website, which is the standard place that candidates inform voters about their positions. I guess when a reporter inquired, the Trump campaign referred him to Aubrey Betancourt, executive director of the California Water Alliance, described in the piece as a small farm backed nonprofit that calls for building more reservoirs using regulatory, quote, flexibility, unquote, to get more water to farms and Southern California cities from Northern California. The group also wants to review the Endangered Species Act, the main federal law that protects native California fish. The law requires that some water be left in rivers to prevent the extinction of fish and other wildlife, which just sounds like a terrible idea, leaving leaving water in the rivers, wasting it to go out to sea. You know, looking back over the years, we keep we keep talking about this topic because it's so important, it's so important to California, and it's just it's so it's so crazy. There are sections of the San Joaquin River that, you know, where they pump all the water out. There there is no river, it's a sandbank. And as Dan Bakker reported in this program some years ago when they were talking about re-flooding the river, putting, you know, water back in it. That right away ran into opposition because if you put water back in the river and you have fish in it, then the fish get protection and, you know, that disturbed a lot of people. But back to the piece. Betancourt said in a phone interview that neither she nor her organization are part of the Trump campaign and that her organization is not taking a position in the presidential race. She said she was contacted by various GOP presidential campaigns for advice on water policy after serving as a delegate to the GOP convention. My name was in the loop and had more to do with my background in water and agriculture than it did in anything else, said Betancourt. But to continue on a bit with the piece, Trump's policies and other environmental issues are just as thin as his water policy. His most specific proposal is a call to halt President Obama's efforts to slow climate change by pulling out of the Parrot Climate Accords and ending Obama's rule to require power plants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In the past, Trump has called for slashing the Environmental Protection Agency, and in an intelligence interview last fall, he said, we'll be fine with the environment. We can leave a little bit, but you can't destroy business. Anyway, I hope you'll take the time to look up this article and read the whole thing. Oh, we're not going to do that today, but holy mackerel. All right, I think we need to take a break in a minute, but before we do, let's let's do a couple miscellaneous small items, such as the fact that a newly identified parasitic worm has been named in honor of U.S. President Barack Obama. Yes, the thread-like blood fluke called Barakatrima obamai infects freshwater turtles. Its discoverers say they admire Obama and that to the people that study them, parasites are beautiful. No word from the White House we're aware of on dishonor... Bestowed upon the president. And uh, there's one other piece related to nasties you find in your blood that I want to talk about for a minute or two. We generally like to avoid articles that have may or might in the title or question mark because they often involve some goofball computer simulation or some wild speculation about something that is a lot of times, you know, a little bit wild and woolly. And, and although that may be the case, with this speculation regarding blood bacteria. This piece by Deborah McKenzie, in new scientist, is probably worth a couple minutes of discussion. The article starts out asking, could bacteria be to blame for a host of conditions we thought had nothing to do with infection? It says that a molecule made only by bacteria have been found to change blood proteins in a way that is common to a score of non-infectious conditions, from heart attacks to Alzheimer's disease. They all involve inflammation, abnormal blood clotting, excessive iron in the blood, and sheets of abnormally folded proteins. If bacteria really link all these observations, we might find that it's possible to fight these non-infectious illnesses by attacking the microbes. And here's a part that should get your attention if you're in the health field. It certainly got mine. Healthy blood has always been regarded as sterile because bacteria don't grow when blood is put in a culture dish. But recent DNA sequencing methods reveal that each millimeter of blood, in fact, contains about 1,000 bacteria. These bacteria are usually dormant, says Douglas Kell at the University of Manchester, UK. They need iron ions to grow, and iron is bound up by proteins that keep free ions at vanishingly low levels in our blood. But, the piece notes, the bacteria can be revived when iron levels climb for some reason, whereupon they secrete molecules on their cell walls called lipopolysaccharides. These are recognized by the immune system and, simu- and stimulate inflammation, a general activation of the immune system that normally helps fight infection. Band can't, but can get out of control and cause damage. Douglas Kell and his colleague Rissia Pretorius of the University of Pretoria in South Africa wondered if lipopolysaccharides might be involved with the abnormal blood clotting often seen in diseases involving inflammation. Most bacteria in our our blood come from our gut. So they mixed lipopolysaccharides from from E. coli, gut bacteria, with fibrinogen, the blood protein that forms the fibrin scaffolds of clots. The LPS, lipopolysaccharides, bound to fibrinogen and made it form abnormal matted clots. It was noted that just one molecule of LPS mixed with 100 million fibrinogen molecules was enough to trigger these changes. Douglas Kell thinks that LPS makes the protein take on a sheet structure rather than a helix, and this deformation then spreads between fibrinogens in a similar way to how the deformation in prion proteins spreads to cause bovine spongiform encephalopathy. This is worth further exploration and by the way in a side in a sidebar to this piece they noted that um, microbes in the blood and and the inflammation they cause when the immune system fights back could be a contributing factor in all sorts of conditions not usually linked with bacteria which is of course the main story the next paragraph notes that the risk of heart disease diabetes stroke and rheumatoid arthritis is higher in people with gum disease which provides bacteria with an easy route into the blood. These conditions all share the hallmarks of bacteria, which I think is probably the best advice I've heard in a long, long time from why You should brush your teeth regularly and probably use some mouthwash. To try and knock down those bacteria to try and make sure you have healthy gums. Bacteria. Bacteria.
1: Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything. All right.
0: I think we need a break at this point. Let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett, reporting from Near Bend, Oregon, and you're listening to Radio Parallax.
1: everywhere. Everywhere you look in the kitchen, inside the cooler, in the dining area, in the restrooms, on our raw chicken. And like I said, bacteria, bacteria, look, there's bacteria, 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 you might not see them, but they're there, bacteria, bacteria, everything you touch, bacteria, bacteria, that's right, salmonella bacteria. Salmonella grows on raw chicken, especially old chicken. Moist foods like our salad, staph bacteria on the left, and strep bacteria on the right, salmonella. Chagelanum, Clostridium Fringe. If you didn't wash your hands, they would become breeding grounds for bacteria. Bacteria? Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. Bacteria? You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria? Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria? That's right. Salmonella bacteria. Fever, cramps, and fever. Dysentery. Fever, be, 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 fever vomiting vomiting chills cramps chills and chills in cramps one square